This is episode number 284, Data-Driven Parenting with Emily Oster. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. The main sources of our guilt are feeling that we were doing the wrong thing. And like there is a right choice and maybe we're not making it. So maybe there's like an op, there's a best thing to do with my kid and I'm not doing that thing. And, and then I think that is a source of guilt. And so some of the, the discussion in the book, I think is really about trying to make the choice that is right for you, sort of recognizing that in, in this space, in many of these spaces, there's no right choice. There, there may be a right choice for you. And the way you can get to that choice is by thinking carefully about what's going to work for you and, you know, thinking about your kid and thinking about the constraints and kind of coming to a place where you're confident that the choice is right, that you didn't make it haphazardly. And once you're there, I think that there should be a little, hopefully, freedom to be like, okay, this was the right choice, and I'm confident in the way that I made the choice, and you know, I'm going to try to move, move forward and, and not sort of second guess. And as part of this podcast, there is a parenthood and pregnancy category that we occasionally visit, and today I'm really excited about our guest. Emily Oster is a professor of economics at Brown University, known for her books that take a data-driven approach to pregnancy and parenting. And her first book, Expecting Better, is something that I enjoyed reading for my first pregnancy. And more recently, I've read her book, Crib Sheet, which is all about developmental milestones and data for young children. If you're wondering what's behind the sushi rule during pregnancy or how much coffee you're allowed to drink from co-sleeping, potty training, and more. Emily covers a lot of this different data and analyses in her different books. Things are going pretty well over here. I am 33 weeks pregnant with our daughter, our second child, and am anticipating having this baby. And I posted on Instagram the other day that I'm trying not to wish away the time, but also happily anticipating having the baby. There's a lot of things that are a little bit different this pregnancy, and in fact, dare I say better, And I will be recording an episode about the third trimester of my pregnancy sometime soon. If you are curious about my first pregnancy and postpartum period, make sure you go to sonyalooney.com slash podcasts and select the parenthood and pregnancy category because I recorded a bunch of podcasts throughout my pregnancy and afterwards on how things were going. And I also recorded a bunch of podcasts with experts, things like how much exercise you should do, what's safe about exercise guidelines. That one was specifically with Katherine Cram, who co-wrote the book Exercising Through Your Pregnancy with James Clapp. So I highly recommend that. And I'm linking that up in the show notes because I bet a lot of you here listening would also be interested in that episode. If you're enjoying everything high performance, make sure that you sign up for my weekly newsletter that comes out every single Monday at sonyalooney.com newsletter. I mostly tackle mindset, habits, and productivity in the article of the week, but I sometimes cover other topics as well. You'll get a question of the week to ponder and a notification of the podcast of the week. I know that lots of people are really enjoying and getting a lot of value out of this newsletter. And the best way is to just tell you about it and to tell your friends about it. So if you're enjoying it or you know somebody else that will, please share it with them. Again, you can get that at sonyalooney.com newsletter, and I look forward to connecting with you over there. So let's get back to Emily. Emily's first book, Expecting Better, provides information to help women make their own well-informed decisions throughout pregnancy. 
And something that's really interesting about all of her work is that it just gives you the tools to make your own decisions. There's no judgment involved, but just so you can know what type of decisions you're making and what those implications could be. She then wrote Crib Sheet, a similarly data-driven book to help new parents navigate all of the conflicting information about how to breastfeed, sleep train, potty train, and more. And that book I read last month, I had just found it and didn't even know that she wrote it. And I really enjoyed it and was so excited to get her on the show to talk about that. And her most recent book, The Family Firm, provides a framework for data-driven parents to think about the key issues of the elementary school years, school, health, extracurricular activities, and more. And I'm excited to pick that book up as well. In this week's episode, Emily and I talked about a range of topics that will interest anybody who has young children at home or is interested in the data behind a lot of recommendations and milestones that are out there. To kick it off, we talked about the hierarchy of different types of research studies because Emily is reporting on tons of different types of data. In our lives, we are inundated with data and it's hard to know what to trust, what these different types of studies mean. So that's where we started. Then we talked about childhood vaccines and autism, whether sleep training works and is beneficial. We talked about how having children impacts marital satisfaction. We talked about daycare, what's best, nannies, daycare, having a stay-at-home parent. We also touched on watching TV and how that impacts learning for kids under five and how there is a difference between kids over three and kids under two. We also talked about potty training and milestones in general. And we wrapped it up talking about alcohol as it relates to breastfeeding and pregnancy. I think you'll find this episode really interesting. And if you know anybody else that would benefit or enjoy this episode, please share it with them as well. If you're enjoying the podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show as that is the best way to help it reach others and to make sure that you get a notification of the show every single week on your favorite podcast player. Spotify has also enabled reviews, and we don't really have much going on over there in terms of reviews. So if you don't mind going over to Spotify and leaving us a review, that would be greatly appreciated. So let's get into today's episode with Emily Oster. Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's so great to get to meet you because as we were just discussing, I read your first book, Expecting Better, when I was pregnant with my first child, and that really helped me. And then I was really excited to find Crib Sheet, which is about raising little guys and girls. And I have an almost two-year-old son, so it's been so helpful. Awesome. I'm so excited. That's so nice. Yeah. So let's talk about your background a little bit. Like, What is your schooling and how has that inspired you to write these books? My training, my sort of academic training is in economics. So I have a PhD, an undergraduate and a PhD in uh, in economics. And the kind of economics that I do is really focused on data at the kind of core. I'm like, like what we call an empirical economist. So I work a lot with, with data and, and with evidence and sort of think a lot about evidence and about what we can learn out of, out of data. My topic area is health. So most of my research is about questions in health, about sort of how people interact with health behaviors. And that sort of led me into the kind of writing that I that I do a lot of now, which is more of which is writing for a lay audience largely, you know, not not so much for academics, although I do some of that too, but uses this kind of training in statistics and data and understanding of health, but in service of um, of kind of helping people work through some of this stuff really in their own life. Yeah. And I found in general, just with health, it's health is a very broad topic, but it's very confusing for a lot of people. There's a lot of information out there that is 
maybe not the best information. And in your book, you talked about different types of studies and people, and you mentioned your books are for the layperson who might not have a scientific background. So can you talk about like the different types of studies if somebody is, you know, reading something and it's like, you know, anecdotal evidence or, you know, double blind placebo controlled, like a lot of people don't know what that means. Yeah. So I think that, that this is a, in some ways interesting, you sort of frame it as like, this is a particular issue in health. Cause I think you're right. It's like much more of an issue in, a, in particularly sort of lifestyle health choices than it is in a lot of other areas. So we kind of think about a continuum of evidence. I think we could say sort of on, on one hand, there's kind of evidence that comes out of anecdote. So, you know, well, like claim, you know, having a whiskey makes you live a really long time. That could be like a claim. And you'd say, well, here's some anecdotal evidence. You know, my grandfather drank three whiskeys every day and he lived to be 105. Okay. Well, that's true about that one person, but that's not really what we think of as kind of good evidence for a general relationship. Most people understand that. Then we kind of move into a, a sort of kind of evidence that's very common in health, which is what I call a, a correlational or an observational study. And so in a study like that, you would look at some health behavior and then you would analyze in the data how common the health behavior is for people with different health outcomes. So you would, to take the, the whiskey example, you would get some data where some people, where people report how much whiskey they have, and you can look at a correlation you can between whiskey drinking and say longevity. And that, that would tell you something about the, the kind of relationship in the data between those, those variables. The problem is, and this is an issue with all of these kind of, those kind of studies, the things that determine whether people drink whiskey or not are that's not that choice is not random so the kinds of people who are drinking whiskey in the evenings are different uh, in many ways from people who are not and it's very very hard in studies of health behaviors to separate out the effect of the particular health behavior that you're studying from the effect of all the other things that are different about people and so that comes up in in things like diet all the time, right? So I wanna identify how important is kale at lowering your blood pressure. Well, people who eat kale eat all, like their diets are totally different than the people who don't eat kale. And how would you really know that it was the kale rather than the other things they're eating, rather than the fact that they're more educated, that they're richer, like all of these things are kind of really con confounded. And then there's the third kind of evidence, which is sort of the best evidence, which is randomized trial evidence where instead of relying on variations that kind of just occur because of the choices people make, you as the researcher generate your own experiment. So you randomly choose some people and send them a bunch of free kale and some people you don't send them a bunch of free kale and you, and you kind of study them over time. And then because the only difference is this choice that you have randomized, you can be more confident about your conclusions. And then what about like double blind and placebo controlled? Right. So when we, so when we say something is placebo controlled, we really just mean that there's a, there's a, a non-treated group. So in, in your, in this kale, imaginary kale experiment that I've run, you know, one version is you could just send a bunch of people kale and you could look at them before and after and see whether their health improved. But you might worry there that it's just that you're studying them, that like they know you're coming back to find out if they're healthier. So they start doing a bunch of other stuff differently. So you'd like to have a group that is otherwise this treated the same, that knows you're coming back to look for them, but doesn't get the kale. So that would be a control group. And so there we'd say there's a, a like a placebo control. 
so that's kind of just having a, a control group. What's tricky in these experiments sometimes is that in a really ideally you would like people to not know who, which group they're in. So if you're studying something like how important is it that you eat kale, it's really hard to, for it to be what we call blind, right? Because people know if they are sent the kale or, or not, right? There's no like fake kale. In something like a vaccine trial, you can do the sort of really gold, gold platinum standard, which is a double blind placebo controlled trial, which would say half the sample gets the vaccine, half the sample gets a saline injection that is not the vaccine. They don't know which one they got. The, the person giving them the vaccine, treating them, doesn't know which one they got. Only somebody in like the back office of Pfizer knows which, which thing you got until they unblind later and find out. And that's like sort of the perfect thing because then you can be confident. It really is just what was in that syringe. Not that you gave them the shot, not that, you know, they changed their behavior in response to knowing what group they're in. But you can only run trials like that in very kind of specific situations. Yeah. So it sounds like there's definitely a hierarchy of validity when it comes to types of studies or quote evidence out there. But I think a lot of people will just go to Google and they'll just like type in a question and then they'll get, you know, they'll look at Healthline or I, I don't know. I'm just thinking of random things that I've yeah. seen pop up and then they'll trust that as like a gold standard of advice. So like, how do people know what to, what to trust and what not to trust when they're Googling? Yeah, I think it's even, it is a huge problem and it is even in some ways sort of deeper than kind of what I was explaining there because, you know, here I've kind of made this distinction between like anecdotal and observational and, and randomized, but actually within those categories, there's also huge amounts of variation. You know, there's really good giant thousands and thousands of people randomized control trials. And then there's a randomized control trial with 14 people, which like, uh, you don't learn anything from that, even if it is randomized, right? So we're kind of asking a lot of people if we think that they're going to you know you know get on Google and search something and then find out and somehow like synthesize the data the data themselves i think there are some you know keywords you can you can kind of look at or some features that you can try to look for like you know is this study randomized and then there are sources that are some sources that are better than others so something you know like webmd which is kind of like a pretty up the middle like well curated website is going to be more reliable than you know your aunt's facebook feed with a <laughs> you know maybe not your aunt um but or my aunt but like one's one's some you know the relatives facebook feed that's got some random study that they've found on in who knows where so you know there's kind of a of ways to curate your sources, which is probably better than trying to like dig into the details of the study always. Yeah. So how do people know who to trust and what to believe then? Because it still kind of brings us back to the question of, well, what do I do? Yeah, no. And I think that that's, that's really hard. I think part of, you know, I mean, we, I don't, we haven't touched on COVID, maybe we won't touch on COVID, but, um, but I think <laughs> one of the things that pandemic has sort of highlighted is, is there's like a huge amount of of expert disagreement in a lot of places. And, you know, people who are kind of reasonable, smart people have different views based on evidence that is often imperfect. And so I think people have found themselves a lot kind of almost expert picking in a way that is sometimes very, um, you know, sometimes very hard. You sort of end up deciding, okay, this is the person who I'm going to listen to. And that's almost no better than, you know, this is the website I'm going to listen to, or this is the mm -hmm. study I'm going to believe. It's basically, it's really hard and you have to select, really you have to select who you want to listen to, but 
a lot of times people are making like almost life-changing decisions based on some of this information. So just being armed with understanding that there's a lot of different types of studies, there's a lot of different types of experts, both with air quotes and without, so that you can be more selective and not just to trust the first three things that show up on Google necessarily. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think often, you know, like a lot in a lot of my writing on on pregnancy, I kind of think of it as kind of scaffolding a conversation with someone who knows more about your particular case, right? Because one of the features of almost any decision you make is that there's going to be, you know, a, like different choices that are right for different people. And are the job of sort of what can you learn out of the literature or what can you learn from studies is almost that you should try to learn something that you can then bring to a conversation with someone who is an expert in you, right? So rather than saying like, this study tells me that this is, you know, that, that I should get this treatment in pregnancy. What your, your goal of the sort of understanding the, the studies is to your goal of sort of learning about that for yourself is to come in a more nuanced way to a conversation with your doctor who then knows a lot about your particular situation. So I'm going to go, I'm not going to talk about COVID because I think that's like a red hot poker and we, <laughs> we spent a lot of time on that. I want to keep this focus on primarily what's in crib sheet, but along the lines of vaccines, a lot of people are afraid to vaccinate their child with quote, traditional vaccines, you know, COVID aside, mm-hmm. and they're worried about autism. And I really like that you touched on that in your book. Cause I was, I was curious like where that was coming from. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think and this is a case where it's so important to be clear on where it's coming from because other like I think it it takes on this sort of mystique. So this the idea that that vaccines in particular the MMR vaccine might be linked to autism comes from a study from a researcher in the UK who had this theory and he published I think in the Lancet a a paper that was basically like a case report on 12 people, children, where his claim was after they got this vaccine, they developed some digestive issues. And also this was linked to autism. And so it's kind of like, if you sort of think about this idea of anecdote as, as data, this is a sort of like next would be the next like tiny step up from that to say, rather than having one person, I have like 12 people, but there was no study, no large scale comparison, certainly no randomization of any sort, really just kind of this case report idea that somehow the diagnosis of autism was in timing proximity to when these vaccines were administered. Now, sort of subsequent to that, it has become clear that this individual had just like tremendously terrible motives and was getting a lot of money in an attempt was somebody was hired was trying to get money in a class action suit against some vaccine manufacturers. He made up a lot of this data. So he sort of selectively chose the 12 people who he thought fit this narrative. And even within that, he made up facts about the cases. So this paper was subsequently retracted. His license was removed. Like there was a huge amount of sanctions. And yet this narrative has sort of maintained despite that and despite the fact that subsequently there's been an enormous amount of evidence suggesting there's absolutely no link here. And that evidence comes from, you know, not randomized trials because we don't randomize access to these vaccines because 
they're really important. But studies with you know millions of kids that compare kids who are vaccinated to kids who are who are not, and there's just no evidence of any elevated risk of autism in in those groups. So this is not a true relationship, but it really was driven by this kind of initial, really like deeply flawed, basically fake study. Yeah, and I've seen that happen in other areas of health where there'll be like a flawed study, but then the damage is already done, and that like assumption carries forward and it just keeps like spooling up and spooling up. So how could people find the original study, you know, like besides like going like Emily Oster is awesome and she knows lots of stuff about this. Like, how can I, how can I find more information? So I think, you know, in something like that, I think actually, uh, you know, Google is not a terrible, you know, not, not a terrible approach because I, you know, a lot of that information is pretty widely accessible. I think part of what I find problematic about some of our public health messaging is, you know, you can, you can find many, many, many websites, which will tell you the truth, which is that vaccines are safe. They actually rarely sort of try to take the time to kind of explain why you might think that there was this link in the first place. And I think that's actually a really complicated aspect of how we message that you, on the one hand, you don't want to like plant the seed in people's head that maybe this isn't safe. On the other hand, if that seed's already there, just saying in a kind of dismissive way, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's fine is not great. So I think if people are sort of in this rabbit hole a little bit, in some ways, the best thing I can say is just try to figure out why. And usually you can find the source of something. Usually you can find, well, why did anybody think that? And in a lot of those cases, when you kind of dial into why did anyone think that you will find like, oh, like that's not a good, you know, that's not a good reason to think that. And this is some kernel of something which got magnified in in kind of crazy ways. But if you get down to the kernel, what you see is the kernel is nothing. Okay. So I want to talk about sleep training next. Um, that's something that people often send me messages about because I did sleep training with my son and we've had really, really great success with that, but everybody has different, you know, desires. And something that I like about your book is that stop judging is a common, you know, core theme is like, there's all this information, but ultimately you need to do what works for you and stop judging other people for what they're doing. Um, but can you talk about the data on sleep training? So sleep training, which, you know, if, if you are not a person with a small child, I'll say is, uh, is a sort of generic term for using some like cry it out approach um, or some approach with some crying to like encourage your kid to sleep. And there's a lot of different versions of this. They almost all involve some kind of crying. And it is it is a place where people feel really judged. And actually what's interesting, which I, I sort of hadn't realized is that, you know, there's a there's a kind of judgment aspect of this for people who are who, who choose to do it, right? So if you, if you choose to sleep train, you will definitely get people who will judge you. It's actually a judgment on the other side too. So one of the things that people will sometimes tell me is I felt really pressured to do this. And when I chose not to, because I didn't think that it worked for like my family, I got a lot of like negative judgment. In terms of what the data says, I think it's kind of two things you could ask here. One is, you know, to what extent does some kind of sleep training encourage sleep in kids? And the other is, you know, is it damaging? So on the question of like, does it work? The answer is yes. Sleep training on average will improve sleep for infants, um, for kids. They tend to sleep longer after sleep training. There is also a fairly significant improvement in sleep and mood for parents. So actually a lot of when we have like randomized trial data 
on sleep training programs, some of the most significant impacts are improvements in parental mood, lowering of maternal depression, improvements in marital satisfaction, which presumably result from the better parental sleep that is resulting from the better child sleep. Then when you look on the other side, you know, are kids who are sleep trained, are they like less happy, less attached? Do they have any long-term impacts? You just see nothing there. So you don't see particularly that it's helpful to babies and kids, but you also see nothing on the other side. It just doesn't matter. You know, so kids are, they're sleeping better in the long run, they look the same. And so the sort of reasons to do this are really that, you know, your kid sleeps better and then, and then you sleep better. And that's good for many families. Yeah. And it seems like having, if possible, you know, when you have kids, better marital satisfaction and a better mood and more energy to show up for yourself. Like that has a lot of merit in how you're going to be parenting and in your patience level with your kids too. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think that we kind of know from many things that sleep is like really important for functioning and that, um, and that, you know, parental mood really does matter for kind of how you show up for your kids and how you show up for yourself, right? That, you know, suffering to the infinite degree is not actually the, like a, like the way to be a good parent. Yeah. And you, so you did bring up marital satisfaction and I'm remembering that that also was in the book, like do kids affect marital satisfaction? Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah, it's not, it's not great. It's not the best news in the book. Um, you know, so, so when they do these studies about kind of how happy people are in their marriage, there is a, a pretty big, on average, a pretty big drop in the kind of first, particularly in the first year of, of kids' lives. And then there's a sort of some recovery, although it doesn't sort of fully recover for, let's say, several decades. <laughs> anyway, but you know, there are some things that ameliorate that. So, so these drops tend to be larger when kids are unplanned. They tend to be larger if people sort of say that they're less happy at the, at the beginning, you know, before they have kids. So sort of looks like kind of doing this, do, having kids on purpose with someone that you are having, have a good pre-child relationship with is good, but you know, is, is, is better. But I mean, anyone who is well, maybe you're not like this, but I think most of us who have had children, like the first year of your kid's life is probably not the time that you are the most excited about your spouse in every day. Yeah. And I, I actually wanted to bring this up because like just the awareness that having kids could affect and probably will affect your marriage on some level is really important because if you just pretend that's not happening or you don't even think about it, then you might not try to take action to create time for you and your spouse or to try and, you know, build better communication pathways. So I really wanted to bring this up because maybe people feel like they're alone, like, oh, like this is just me. And it's like, no, this is pretty common. And there's some ways and some things that you can do if you have this awareness to try and make it better for yourself. Yeah. I think that the two things I sort of wish that I had thought about in my marriage before the first kid was born was one, the sort of recognition of the need to carve out just time that was just going to be us. Right. So you sort of go from this experience where like, you're basically like, it's just the two of you. And so like, there's plenty of time to like chat and laugh and have a good, you know, and, and like kind of just be the two of you together to a point where like, there could be no time like that. You could find yourself literally, you never have this sort of like downtime unless you plan for it, but you're not used to planning for it because you didn't have to before. And so I think, you know, I wish we had thought of that. And, and then the other thing is there is a lot of joint decision-making that about something that you care a lot about that you don't know anything about. And that is a good recipe for conflict. And so if you have, you sort of don't have a system for making choices that are hard where you disagree 
then you're just going to, that's, there's just going to be a lot of, a lot of arguing. And I think that um, when I sort of reflect back on this, I think, you know, we, we argued a lot in the first year for kind of these, these reasons, the first year of my second child's life was totally different because we had kind of put in place a lot of these, we'd thought about this, we already had a kid, whatever. So it was like the, there was not that there wasn't anything we disagreed about or many things we disagreed about, but we had a much better way to kind of resolve those disagreements rather than just like moping. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. that (laughs) Yeah. So you, you just kind of touched on like time for yourselves as a couple and just generally that makes me think about childcare and you had a lot in your book about like stay at home mom versus a working mom and like the different types of childcare nanny versus daycare. And I know people would be really fascinated to hear about this because there's a lot of different approaches. There's a lot of pressure or maybe even like guilt that people inflict upon themselves or even other people's, you know, your family saying, I can't believe you're doing it this way. We did it this way 40 years ago. So that's a really like broad topic and a broad question, but can you just give us an overview about what the childcare data says? And then we can kind of pick out some uh, topics to focus on. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the kind of big picture takeaway on this is that when we try to compare, you know, outcomes, and we talk about what outcomes mean for kids, but it's usually things like cognitive functioning and behavior, which, you know, are some things you that we might care about, but anyway, they're the things we can measure. When we look at those kind of outcomes, it, it actually, they do not vary in large ways across all of this different set of choices. So if you sort of think about the sets of choices about working or not working, and if you're working, what's your kid doing? Are they going to childcare? They have a nanny. All of this stuff, it, it just does not show up very much in differences across kids. It's not that there's nothing. It's not that we don't see sort of little effects in either in sort of either direction, but by and large, any of those effects are very small. And so it kind of puts the onus back on like joint family decision-making around like, what do you want to do? That if you're, if your goal was to like do the best thing for your kid, there are many best options. There is no obvious, like this is the best thing. And if you can afford it, that's what you should do. And, and here are like the second best things. There are a lot of different things that all kind of work roughly the same in expectation. And so there's a, um, a kind of, then the choice is, is almost more about, you know, what do you want and and what like works, you know, practically and financially for your, for your family. Yeah. So from like a cognitive development perspective, a stay-at-home parent versus a nanny versus going to daycare, there isn't any differentiation that is notable in the data. Yeah, exactly. So you can, you know, you can start to tease out little things like maybe daycare or so some kind of childcare is a little better for cognitive functioning. Sort of if you're there, like, between 18 months and four, and maybe it has a little bit of a negative impact on behavior in the first year, but like these effects are tiny. They go in all different directions. It's just not, should not really probably be an important part of this decision. Yeah. And probably a lot of that has to do with the personality of the child. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, some kids operate better in one setting or one childcare with one kind of nanny, you know, again, all of these things are like, yeah, your kids are going to be the way they are and your parenting is going to, you know, other things about parenting are, may matter, you know, may matter more. <laughs> so, yeah, we talked about outcomes as being like cognitive development, but what about like happiness? I don't know if they, that's a, that's kind of a, a big word and measuring happiness is kind of a hard thing to measure, but um, did you see anything about that? 
There is no data on happiness. I mean, this is part of what, like, when I start studying bigger kids, you get the same kind of thing because as your kids age, you really sort of realize like what I'm trying to accomplish with my kids is like, is not like a high test score or like a good performance on the externalizing behavior index, even though that's all I can see in the data, right? I'm like, what I'm trying to do is generate like people who are nice, kind, you know, thoughtful adults who are happy and content. And we have almost no way to measure that in our data. And I think that's just like a real basic limitation of, of the way that we do science around these questions. Yeah. And I mean, that that's a big decision for the individual, because if you think, well, childcare or sleep training or, you know, whatever, whatever doesn't affect cognitive development negatively, but it might impact the happiness of my individual child who has different temperaments, you know, what is that doing? And being able to pay attention to that, I think is, is really complicated. Yeah. And it's hard, you know, if, if, with little kids, there's kind of a hard, particularly with little kids, it's sort of hard to know, like, what would it mean for them to be happy? Like they would like to just sit, you know, around and eat Doritos all day, but like, that's not, that's not really happiness in the kind of, so it, it is, there is a lot of uh, here about sort of trying to, to tease out the kind of immediate versus the aggregate in terms of, you know, is my kid like, just how is my kid doing? But I, I do think there's a, that it's not impossible to do that. And it, it's something that is going to be very specific to kind of like, you know, how does your kid seem? And I know this is more of like a, a psychology question, but for people who feel guilty about putting their kids in daycare or having a nanny, do you have any advice for them? I think the, the main sources of our guilt are feeling that we we're doing the wrong thing. And like, there is a right choice and maybe we're not making it. So maybe there's like an op, there's a best thing to do with my kid and I'm not doing that thing. And, and then I think that is a source of guilt. And so some of the, the discussion in the book, I think is really about trying to make the choice that is right for you, sort of recognizing that in, in this space, in many of these spaces, there's no right choice. There, there may be a right choice for you. And the way you can get to that choice is by thinking carefully about what's going to work for you and, you know, thinking about your kid and thinking about the constraints and kind of coming to a place where you're confident that the choice is right, that you didn't make it haphazardly. And once you're there, I think that there should be a little, hopefully freedom to be like, okay, this was the right choice. And I'm confident in the way that I made the choice. And, you know, I'm going to try to move, move forward and, and not sort of second guess. So I guess, but I mean, it's hard because like, you know, I've like generally have been quite confident about the choices we've made around, you know, childcare and, and, so on. But of course, if you send your kid to childcare some of the time or leave it with a nanny or do anything or even stay with them, whatever, sometimes your kid cries, right? You drop them off at preschool and they cry. They clutch you and they cry. And it's just, you're just like, you're crushed. You know, it's like horrible. And they're, and everyone's like, just leave. They'll be fine. Just give them a big smile and leave. So there your kids like on your leg screaming and you're like, bye, have a great day. And, and you know, for you, like, I think almost what's hard about that is then for you, like for the whole day, they're crying on your leg, you know, like that's the thing yeah. in your head. Of course, the second you leave, your kids like, man, they're gone. It's fine. I'm not going to like, oh, blocks. <laughs> oh, like the, the purple blocks today, you know? And so I think that's, that's part of what's hard. You really, there requires like a real cognitive shift to get in the car and be like, okay, that was great. Let's move it on. <laughs> Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, making a decision and then trying not to second guess that decision. Cause a lot of times we'll make a decision and then say, I don't know if that was the right one. And then you spend all this energy 
second guessing yourself or comparing again and going back to that decision. Yeah. So just trying to make move decisions on. where you feel confident and move forward. Yeah. Yeah. No, I talk some in, in the sort of the, the book that I have about older kids. I talk some about this sort of decision structure where one of the steps is move on. It's basically like, think about what the decision is, make the decision and then move on and try not to think about it. You know, try not to think about it again. What's that book called for people who are interested? Uh, it's called The Family Firm. It's okay. about early school years. So it's the same kind of approach, but bigger kids. All right. One thing that I am excited to talk to you about is TV and learning. Again, you know, people are going to do what's best for them. So I don't want to sound judgmental or, you know, whatever. But my parents are like, I can't, be- I don't, we don't let our son watch TV. And they're like, oh my gosh, like you, you're, you're terrible. Like you watch TV and you survived and blah, blah, blah. And for me, the reason why I, and it was great to read your book, but the reason why I didn't want to is because I want him to, my son to use his imagination. I want him to be engaged. I want him, I don't want him already on a screen because we are going to be spending most of our lives there anyway. But my parents just seem to think that that's this terrible thing that I don't let him watch TV. And I, after I read your book, I said, well, like from a learning perspective, there's some data there. So can you talk about the data with TV and learning for little kids and then a little bit older kids? Yeah. So, so for kids under two, there's just no evidence that they can learn from TV, right? So you'll sort of sometimes see these um, like kind of baby Einstein videos of this famous thing, right? The idea, like if you just put your kid in front of a television, like I don't know, they'll turn into Einstein, I guess. Um, and there's versions of these that are going to like teach them to read and teach them to talk and whatever. And the, the thing is that kids at ages, they just can't learn from videos. It's not that they can't in- enjoy them. They might enjoy watching baby Einstein, but they're not like, they're not learning from things they need to, they just can only learn from, they basically can only learn from people. Um, when you get to, to older kids, like sort of three to three, kind of the three to five range, we actually have a little bit of evidence from the rollout of Sesame Street that kids can actually learn something from television. So like kids who were exposed to Sesame Street actually like were better prepared for kindergarten than kids who were not because Sesame Street has this sort of, I don't know, they, like you're, they're telling you about your letters and your numbers and, and so on. So there's a sort of flip around the age of kind of two or three where kids can start learning. Now, of course, that flip has a, has a kind of opposite side, which is that, you know, your three, your three to four year old can learn other things from television. Also, um, <laughs> which, so this is like some curation that you, that you want. But, you know, I think that, that people kind of put too much. One of the things that comes out from this, I think for me, is the idea that we're just putting too much emphasis on screens as either good or not good, as opposed to like a thing that you could choose the way that you're going to make other choices about the things that your kid does. And so you could very reasonably say, look, this is just not the thing we're doing now. You know, we're not doing screens or we're not using a balanced bike or what, like there's like tons of, of these kind of choices that you're going to make about how your kid spends their, their time. And I think very reasonable people will make different choices about when exactly they'll let their kid watch TV and how much of it. And and so on. it's not obvious that one of these things is kind of right or not. Right. It's just the choice. Yeah. And again, when we're talking about outcomes, it's like, we're just talking about the outcome of learning. We're not talking about the outcome of, well, you know, mom or dad really needs a break. So little Johnny's just going to go watch a show for 30 minutes. And like, that's totally fine. And, you know, like, that's a different outcome or like maybe the kid is does is happier and in a better mood throughout the day if they end up getting to watch a show so that those are all different outcomes um that people can consider too yeah yeah and i think there's like there's a real kind of like where does this fit into my 
like, where does this fit into the way we're operating our, our day? Right. So there's like, kind of like, is your kid watching six hours of television instead of doing anything else? That's like probably more, probably there are other things they could be doing with that time. You know, is it a half an hour in this some particular, you know, time frame that works? I think that makes more sense. It's like an argument for a sort of deliberateness with screens that I think we don't always kind of think fully think through. Yeah. I like that word deliberateness. Um, in your book, there is like a gap between age two and three, it was like from zero to two, this from, from after age yeah. three, this, is it because they're just, there wasn't good data between two precise. to three? Yeah. It's just not that precise. And, you know, in that age, like sort of particularly for some of like screens, just going to vary a lot, you know, your, like how much attention span kids have and how much they like that kind of stuff and, and, you know, where they are developmentally. Yeah. And developmental milestones, I wish I brought this up earlier, but this is a huge source of stress for a lot of people. Like, well, my kids, you know, 18 months and, you know, the neighbor's kid is talking in full sentences and my kid isn't talking at all. Or, you know, there's all these milestones, but there's a, such a wide range, but people stress out about the milestones. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I think the, the biggest stress from the milestones is this idea that like, that they are numbers, right. That like the way that walking works is like, you know, we say like kids walk on average at 12 months. That's true. Like around a year is like the average time the kids walk, but there is a huge range in the kind of normal time for the sort of typical time for doing that from, you know, as young as seven months to as old as about, you know, like 16 months for sort of like in the normal range, 15, 16 months, maybe 18 months for walking. And so that like that range, I mean, that's like, but, and those are not kids with, that's not because people have, you know, developmental issues or anything else. It's just some kids walk earlier than, than others. And, and yet when we talk about these milestones, we talk about them like numbers, like your kid will roll over at six weeks, your kid will do this at three months, you know, your kid will like do that. And then when it's like six weeks and one day, people are like, Oh my God, my baby did roll over, you know? And yeah, it was just an average. And somehow, you know, we, we are comfortable doing that with things like height and weight with our baby, right? They say like, here's where your baby is in the, and you, nobody's like, Oh, they're only at 30. I thought they'd be exactly at 50. You know, people understand like some people are the 20th percentile, some people are the 70th percentile. And, um, and that there isn't, that isn't some kind of like quality ranking of your baby, but somehow we sort of take these milestones as like quality rankings or something. And there's just in almost all of them, there's a huge range, you know, which is different to say than, you know, different than saying that there aren't some things that would cause people to, to be concerned, but it's like quite important to distinguish between like, this is a totally normal variation and when kids walk or crawl or roll over or whatever. And like, this is something that's sort of outside of that, of that range. That's kind of what pediatricians are, are for and are good at doing, but in, instead it sort of gets, I don't know, people like overinterpret. Yeah. And I think the comparison thing again is just stressful for people in general. Yeah. No, I remember when my like one best friend had her kid like three months after me and we live right near each other and spent all this time together. And her son, like even though he was three months younger, like walked substantially sooner than than my kid. And my kid, she's like sitting on the ground, but she's like really big and he's just like tootling around. And I was like, ah, come on, Penelope, get get it up. (laughs) Now she knows how to walk. (laughs) Yeah. And there's like almost like a competitiveness between parents too, of like, oh, my kid did this earlier or whatever. And it doesn't actually matter. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't matter, but it's so like, I don't know. You just want, I don't know how much is you want your kid to be the best or you just like, I don't know, people. Yeah. Parenting. Yeah. I heard something. It was really helpful when my son was really young. It was something to the effect of, all kids are going to do the majority of things by age three. 
So whether they do it like early or they do it late, as long as they're doing it, it doesn't actually matter. And it doesn't make that big of a difference of any difference for like long-term outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's true. I mean, that's true. Even of a lot of things I learned later, you know, like kids, kids do learn to read at like different ages and, you know, that's not like, and they all, but they basically, you know, most people learn to read. Yeah. Can you talk about the learning to read information? Yeah. So, so again, this is a place actually a bit like the videos with babies where some people will have this idea that like your baby can learn to read. Actually, somebody just sent me like, you know, should I do this program with my baby so they can learn to read? Your baby cannot learn to read. Your baby not, cannot learn to read. And so we, we think about, about how reading operates. Um, when people actually learn to read, they learn to read through phonics, through sort of sounding, like the idea of sounding out. And that is something that you sort of develop the ability to learn at, at an older age. So, you know, a kind of three-year-old, probably not a four-year-old could start to learn to, to sort of read in, in some ways. And it's, it's possible to kind of teach a four-year-old to read to some extent, some four-year-olds, but this idea that like your baby can learn to read doesn't really make any sense because even if you could teach your baby to memorize words, which you might be able to for some age of baby, that would not be the same as reading. Now I feel like I need like a utensil to bang on a wine glass, like ding, 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 (laughs) potty training. (laughs) Oh, potty training. (laughs) So potty training is very simple to explain and difficult to do. There are a lot of different ages you can train your kid to use potty. You can start trying before, you know, when your kid is like under two, younger than that, you can wait until they're really old. Here's the thing. If you start trying to potty train your kid when they're little, it'll take a long time because, you know, they're, they don't have as much control of their, their bladder. They don't have as much understanding of like when they're going to need to pee. So you can do it. It'll just, you know, there's like more pee on the floor. It'll take some time, whatever. If you try to potty, you wait till your kid's like three and a half, like they get it, you know, they, they know when they're peeing. And so it could happen pretty quickly. The sort of downside is that sometimes then you get into like, you know, like they don't want to, they have more emotional control. And also then you spent all that time in the interim cleaning up their, their poop. So, but I think there isn't either a correct time or a correct method to do this. It's just, a lot of it is about, you know, whether, what kinds of time you want to invest in, in what way. I'll tell you the one thing that, that often happens with body training that people do not expect is stool toileting refusal. So a lot of kids are afraid to poop in the potty and you can have kids who are, who are like able, have no problem being in the potty. They have no problem and they have no problem knowing when they have to poop, but they will not poop in the potty. And that's uh, really frustrating for parents. <laughs> Especially because the poop is like the thing that you don't want to be. That's what up. you're trying to get rid of. Exactly. That's <laughs> the thing you're trying to get rid of. Yeah. And so there are some, some ways that people talk about trying to get around this, but it's actually, and you know, eventually typically resolves, but it can last a really long time. People can be like, it can be like a year of, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Body training. So what's kind of the average, again, not for people to compare and freak out, but I was surprised about the average age of potty training for kids. So the average age is now about three. So it's, it's like crawled up over time from something around two to something around three or even 
older than than that. So I think, you know, partly diapers have improved a lot. Right when I was a kid in like the eighties, like I think diapers were like just kind of like a piece of tissue paper, and so it was like a lot of incentive to to potty train. Now the diapers are amazing. I think there's a sort of like, well, the diaper's fine, and and then it's it's like a lot of work to you know, there's a, a more of a effort to transition. Yeah, exactly. Like half the time, the kid doesn't even know their diapers wet. <laughs> Right. Exactly. Yeah. They're not getting the kind of, actually, sometimes people will say like one potty training approach is to switch kids into like crummy, like 1980 style diapers, because then they know that they pee. Yeah. I was a, a child of the eighties as well. My parents used like the cloth diaper with like the safety pin. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. <Yeah. laughs> I was just afraid that you'd like smack, like stab the kid with this. Yeah. Which they probably did. <laughs> so you know, this book was written, uh, what, what year was this book released? Was it, it's 2019. Yeah. Is there anything that you wish that was in this book now that you didn't put in? You know, I think they're always like topics where you're like, ah, next time, you know, when I update, um, when I update, but I actually feel like I, I hit a lot of what I would, would want with this. And then one of the things I say sometimes is, you know, I wrote this book kind of after I had a second kid. And I think if I had written it after, after the first kid, there would have been like, it would have been like 3000 pages long because it would have been like every neurosis that I had, like with the first kid, like every crazy thing that I, that I sort of obsessed about. And by the time I get to the second kid, it like a lot of things had codified as to sort of like, well, just don't think about that. You know, like here are some things you really need to kind of settle and worry about and kind of occupy your, your headspace. And then and then here are a bunch of things you don't need to, to think about. And so I try pretty hard to like dial the book down to like, here are kind of the big the big things. I mean, I'm sure there's pieces that I was just writing something for my newsletter about whether you need to give your kid a bath. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't have that in there. <laughs> yeah. With, with our first, I tried telling myself like, pretend it's your second and it's impossible to do that, but try, just okay, try. But so I'll be really interested to see how it goes with the second, the things that I was really worried about, or, you know, really a stickler on. And if I'm a stickler around the second yeah. time around. I was not, we had like so much restriction on sugar. And then with the second kid, it's like, it's like, you know, we just like, we get like, we had all these things like you can have dessert, whatever. And then like, but then like by the time we got to the second kid, the first kid was like older. And so we'd have dessert. And then the second kid just like that all went out the window. Uh, <laughs> that's actually uh, something I didn't even think about. So yeah. Thanks for bringing yeah. that up. There you go. <laughs> um, so we have a few minutes left and I know that a lot of people are a fan of your first book. There's a lot of pregnant women and pregnant athletes that like to follow this type of work that I'm doing. Um, it's been a while since I read expecting better. Can you talk about kind of like the key, one of the key things that everybody asks you about, uh, that you think would be beneficial? Oh my gosh. Okay. So, you know, I think the, like a lot of the questions, that people have in pregnancy are the sort of like this early stage restriction stuff. So can I have sushi? Can I have probably the most common question is, can I have sushi? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I don't know why pregnant women really enjoy sushi. And, you know, the answer there, as it was with a lot of these things is like, yes, the rules that you are getting around a lot of these food restrictions in particular in pregnancy are not really based on, um, are not really based on very much. They're kind of based on a sort of some kind of, complicated overabundance of, of caution and that it would be, you know, better, uh, it would be fine. It is fine to have some sushi, you know, it is, there are certain kinds of cheese restrictions, which are probably over overblown. So you know, I think a lot of the message of that book is, is that data can lead you to a more relaxed, less neurotic place. 
Yeah. One thing that I wanted to bring up was alcohol, Mm -hmm. the choice to like have a sip of something or have a drink in pregnancy. And I feel like this is, I feel like nervous even bringing this up because a lot of people have, you know, opinions on this. Yeah. 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 So I wanted to hear what you uh, wrote. Yeah. Of course. So, so I, I spent a lot of time expecting better on this, on this question and on sort of coming back to what we said at the very beginning about like, what is the sort of source of evidence for, for things like this? I think, you know, in the case of, of kind of alcohol and pregnancy, we don't have what we, what we sort of ideally like, I guess, which is a, you know, big randomized trial. What we have are studies which compare women who have some, uh, you know, drink occasionally during pregnancy to women who don't. And it's, it's sort of very clear that drinking a lot, uh, during pregnancy is, is dangerous dangerous. So we should not do that. But then, you know, if you want to know about sort of smaller amounts, you can kind of dig into this data and it really varies in quality. So there's actually some very high quality data, like from Europe, where occasional alcohol consumption is just much more common. And there you really, in that like better data, you really don't see any differences, any sort of impacts of small amounts of alcohol consumption on anything we measure with with infants. And so the data there is, is quite reassuring. And there's a lot of it around the view that, you know, there isn't any clear evidence. There isn't really any evidence of, of harm of small amounts of alcohol consumption. When you try to isolate the sort of sets of research that maybe do show more of those links, there's not much there, but to the extent it is, there are a lot of other differences across, across the women, for example, differences in how much cocaine they use, which are likely to be contributing to some of these differences across infants. So it's a little bit of a complicated space, but I think in, in kind of really digging into the evidence, it does not look like there's any, um, there's any reason, there's any strong evidence suggesting that occasional alcohol consumption is problematic. Yeah. And I think the hardest part for people is like, what is moderate? Like what is a small amount? And people think I'm just having a glass of wine, but they're drinking like they have a big cut glass and they're putting way more than a small glass of wine, or, you know, they think they're drinking, you know, X amount of days per week. And this goes for when you're not pregnant, mm-hmm. you know, if you're trying to drink a quote moderate amount, what is moderate? And then our, uh, perception of what we're doing is actually not as moderate as we might think it is in some cases. Yeah. And I think in both, you know, there's a sort of argument for this, both in pregnancy and, and out that, you know, you're like, when we think about our consumption of, of alcohol, that we want to have a, a kind of like realistic understanding of how much we are having. And so when we talk about a glass, it's not nine ounces, it's, you know, four ounces. Um, and that, uh, that, that is, you know, that is a part of this conversation also. And, you know, and I think for a lot of women, one of the things that's sort of interesting is this, this part of the book got a lot of attention. I think there were a lot of people who were like, oh, you know, it was like, I, I really, I felt like it was good to know, like I could have a, like a half a glass of champagne at my, to celebrate this and that. And I, you know, felt more relaxed, but there's a lot of people who were like, yeah, you know, I've read that and I totally see what you're saying, but like, it's not for me. You know, I'm, I don't feel like this is like not something that I care that much about, or is an important part of my life or just in general, I don't feel, feel good about that. And I think that that's like, that's all, I mean, obviously that's also great. And I think a lot of this is about sort of thinking about your own, you know, where you are yourself on, on these choices and how they're going to make you feel. Yeah. And something else that I liked in crib sheet is you talked about alcohol and breastfeeding. Cause a lot of times yeah. there's like a lot of stress around that, especially if you're doing like the dream feed with the baby at 10 o'clock and you want to have a drink after the baby goes to bed and 
if you can, you know, feel it, should you, should you not breastfeed the baby? Can you talk about that? Yeah. So that turns out to be actually much easier to evaluate than the pregnancy thing, because you can literally see what kind of alcohol there is in the breast milk. Right. And so rather than like having to rely on thinking about how the placenta works, you just be like, okay, drink some alcohol pump, and then we'll test how much alcohol there is in your, in your breast milk. And so, um, so it turns out even if you drink quite a lot, the concentration of alcohol in your breast milk is very limited because it is reflecting the concentration in your bloodstream, right? At the, at the time. And so they do these studies where they have people have like four shots of tequila in an hour and still the concentration in their breast milk is really low. And sort of, if you then kind of like translate that into your evening glass of glass of wine, um, that's, you know, pretty, that's even better and even, you know, even easier. And then the other thing is like, if you wanted to wait two hours, then it's kind of, you're kind of have metabolized it. But in, just in general, this is the concentrations in breast milk are really low. Yeah. I had a lot of paranoia around that when I was breastfeeding my son, partially because I am kind of a lightweight when it comes to drinking. So I would, I actually got some of those test strips on Amazon. Oh, nice. can, like, test, okay. I don't know how accurate those are because they would show, <laughs> Yeah. Like there's a con there's concentration in here, but it would be based on a color and like what color blue is this? Where, sh where does this shade fall? And I thought yeah. I, this probably is not very accurate at all. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that may be a hard way to, to get good data on this. <laughs> yeah. So I was, I was happy to read that. It's like, it's probably fine. Probably fine. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, you mentioned your newsletter, um, some of your other books, where can people find you and all of this great information you're putting out there for us? So the newsletter is a good place to find me. It's called Parent Data and it's on Substack. I am also on Instagram at Prof Emily Oster and on Twitter. And the books are Expecting Better, Crib Sheet, and The Family Firm. Are there any other secret books that you're working on? No secret books. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. We'll see. Three books is a lot. Three books is a lot. There'll probably later be some secret fourth book, but we'll see. Not yet. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this great information. And I'm really excited for the audience to connect with you. Thank you so much. I hope you got a lot out of that episode. There is so much information and pressure and judgment and comparison around parenting. And having access to this type of data for me has been really helpful. Don't forget to subscribe to my weekly newsletter that comes out every single Monday at sanyaluni.com slash newsletter for all things high performance living. And I'm so grateful to you. And I'm so thankful that you are a listener of this podcast. I know that you have a lot to choose from. I know I subscribe to a lot of podcasts. So it means the world to me that you are here and that you're listening. And if you're brand new, I am so excited that you found this show. And I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. And we'll see you right back here next week.